Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Like most people living in the Western world, Erica Buist had not had to encounter death at first hand until, very sadly, her father-in-law died and he was undiscovered for several days. The experience of this discovery prompted Erica to re-examine her own attitude to death and to look at how death is celebrated in many cultures around the world. And the subject of these investigations forms an amazing book that she's written called This Party's Dead. I'm delighted to have Erica here with me in the bunker. Erica, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Erica, I tried to sort of explain your way into this story, but I think it would be great to have it from in, in your own words, because it is a remarkable kind of transformative moment in, in many people's lives, I imagine, and certainly in yours. And particularly in that sort of unexpected way that, that, that your, your own sort of encounter happened with, with your father-in-law. Could you say a bit about that? So we'd actually lived with his father for two years and then we'd moved out. And uh, there was just this week where he wasn't responding to emails. And this was quite normal for him. But I don't know, for some reason, I was nervous about it this week. And uh, then we did, we got a call from uh, his cleaner who couldn't get into the, the house and she could hear that the dog was barking and that there were papers piled up on the doorstep. So my my fiance at the time, he kind of went into denial straight away. I knew immediately that that he was dead. And so, yes, yeah, so we found him, and, but he had been dead for eight days. So, yes, it was it was really shocking. I think partly because we think we expect to decline when we lose somebody. We expect them to get ill and to, you know, be sick for a while. You don't expect to lose them suddenly. That's really strange because actually uh, he died of undiagnosed heart disease, and that's one of the biggest causes of death in the world, but no one sort of tells you to expect somebody to drop dead. So, yeah, it was a massive shock. And, of course, finding him after eight days meant there were sort of some realities about the state of the body and stuff that was very, very traumatic. But there was this strange situation that I found myself in, which was that he, I was distraught, but he wasn't my dad. So no one sort of thought I was particularly upset about it. So nobody asked how I was. And that kind of, for me, just confirmed the, the sense that I had, that I didn't have the right to grieve about it. So I thought I, I just won't because that gets me out of all the pain, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, and that obviously. didn't go very well because yeah, obviously <laughs> just, I just won't bother. Yeah. It, it didn't work as it turns out when, when, you know, when grief is inside you, it demands to be felt. So um, suppressing it worked out brilliantly the end. No, it didn't work out brilliantly. It worked out terribly. I sort of found myself trying to gain control of it. So what I found myself doing, and bear in mind, I thought I was a genius at the time. Yeah. I found myself stalking everyone I knew online to check they hadn't also dropped dead because suddenly this seemed like it seemed completely logical that anyone I'm not looking at right now might be dead. And I, I just sort of thought, well, I guess it falls to me to check on everybody. And it was sort of in this madness that I found myself staying inside, but I hadn't gone out. So I sort of realized I'd become agoraphobic and was quite annoyed about it. So this the sort of fateful day was when I, I sort of admitted to myself, okay, I don't think I think you are supposed to leave the house at some point. So um, I, I sort of, go I literally just Googled how to get over agoraphobia and it told me to go outside, which I thought was rude. Um, because that was all it suggested. You're looking for something a bit more complicated. Yes. Do you know, I think what I was hoping it would say is that there was, I could just have a glass of orange juice and an hour of Netflix. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> but apparently you have to go outside. So I did. And this is, this is the interesting thing. Agoraphobia, it's not really a fear of going outside. It's just that when you do it, you have a panic attack. 
And it's sort of, um, I mean, really, it's it's a phobia of anything is essentially your own death anxiety channeled into something controllable, you know. So yeah. um, so I decided to go out and buy a sandwich. That's all I wanted. And I went out and it was just, honestly, it was, I remember feeling like the air was as thick as melted chocolate. Like it was so hard to breathe. I was in Waitrose and just a nice lady came over to me and uh, I think she was trying to offer me a discount on Jaffa cakes or something, but mm. I just freaked out and I threw the sandwich and I ran home. And it was while I was sort of sitting at home, I thought, okay, I don't think this is how you're supposed to respond to, <laughs> to death and grief. Um, I, don't, I don't remember this being in the five stages, uh, sandwich throwing. Because I used to live in Mexico, I'd seen lots of Day of the Dead celebrations. And I was yeah. sort of sitting there remembering how my friends used to say, you know, we're not afraid of death here. And I just found that so bizarre. And just out of interest, I Googled death festivals around the world. And I was there for hours. There are loads of them. Uh, ones where they, as I thought at the time, they, they respond to death by throwing a party, not a sandwich. So yeah. um, it was the strangest thing. By the time my husband got home, I had a list of seven death festivals, places where they, uh, you know, they celebrate death and the dead. And I just thought, okay, this is one for every day we didn't find Chris. So I think this is what I'm going to do. So that was quite strange telling my husband that I failed to buy a sandwich, but I'm also going to go to seven countries. That was a bit of a strange conversation, but that is what I eventually did. And you've written an account of that, and it, it's a fascinating account, and it takes us, takes the reader to Mexico, Japan, Madagascar, and Indonesia, and so on. So in terms of the, you know, your, your extraordinary journey, obviously people should read your book and, and, and learn more. But if you were going to sort of pick out one or two highlights, what would they be in terms of this sort of discovery that you, you went on? Gosh, I mean, I guess the, the two that sort of spring to mind straight away are Madagascar and Indonesia, I th- only because those were the two where the corpses were actually invited to the party. So that was definitely, I, I, I had those sort of quite near to the end of the journey. I think just because I needed that time to sort of get get myself to that point, the other ones were very much sort of like, oh, the spirits are visiting us tonight. Whereas in Madagascar, the first thing I did on the, on the day of the turning of the bones, which is where they go and they pull the bodies out of the tombs, they invited me to stand on the tomb with lots of drunk dancing men. And I just watched as they pulled corpse after corpse out of the tomb, wrapped it in a fresh shroud and then put it on their shoulders and danced around to the music and it was just utterly joyful that I got hit in the head by a corpse that day (laughs) someone behind me was picking up they were picking up a corpse to have a dance and they just the, the balance was slightly off and I felt this thunk in the back of my head and I just turned around and they were sort of laughing and saying sorry and I just thought A few years ago, I was sitting at my kitchen table and I was terrified and agoraphobic and searching for death festivals. And now I just got hit in the head by a corpse and it's funny. Like it was such a strange, a a strange moment where you sort of realize how far you've come. And that was fascinating because both there and in Tanataraja in Indonesia, the reason the corpses are invited to the party is because of a key difference between the way we see death, which is here when you die you lose all your power. 
you know, your projects are over, your power is gone, which is why you don't speak ill of the dead. You know, you don't, you don't kick a man when he's six feet down. Um, And over there, you don't speak ill of the dead either, but that's because they, they increase in power. So essentially in these cultures, when you die, you are now the intermediary between the people and God. Like if I want to pray for protection or health or good health or whatever, I'm praying to my ancestors and saying, can you sort this out with God? So once there's an increase in power, they have to keep them sweet. And so they're inviting them to the party. And in Tana Taraja, I was meeting dead bodies. And the reason I say meeting is because you have to, you know, say hello. Like I I say dead bodies, dead bodies to me, you're not dead in Tana Taraja until you've had your funeral. So I met a dead body, um, someone who had physically died 20 years beforehand. And, you know, I had to say hello and I had to say thank you for being a good host. And, you know, it was at one point I said, how long has he been dead? And it was very delicate. It was like, okay, he's, he's not dead. (laughs) It was like a faux pas. But yeah, you know, they pulled out these bodies from the crypts in Tanis Raja and they had, you know, they gave them brand new clothes and everyone was posing for photos and people were running up to them and sticking iPhones in their faces because they were on a FaceTime call. And I could see someone on the phone sort of waving and sort of almost crying saying, hi, grandma. And it was just, lovely and I think one of the reason that stood out for me so much is because even by this point when I'd been to this was my last death festival and I I thought I was way past the idea that a dead body is a frightening thing and yet I I sort of it hadn't occurred to me how visible the love would be that I I mean this moment a, a moment that really changed me was when this woman she was sat next to her grandmother her grandmother had been dead for four years and they were just sort of looking out at the at the view and then she turned to her grandmother's corpse and she just saw a bit of like dust in her hair and she just brushed it away and it was just this such a loving gesture and Mm. I I actually got this on video and with a bit of trepidation I shared this on Twitter thinking that westerners would be horrified and it was the opposite it was just this outpouring um and it it went crazy viral in Indonesia that clip actually but all these um British people were saying this is beautiful I wish I could see my grandmother again I just thought this is fascinating because we know really that these festivals are done out of love, but I, I'd honestly forgotten how visible it would be. And um, also I can promise you hanging out with a dead body sounds bizarre. It is so ordinary after a couple of minutes. I remember as a kid thinking if I ever saw a dead body, I'd just be a basket case. Yeah. And it's just, it's weird. Once you sort of engage with the fact of mortality, it, it, I remember, I remember thinking that it felt like, I'd heard a monster in the darkness and I'd shone a torch on it. It was just a cat. You know, mm. I, me- I remember feeling almost cheated that I'd been told my whole life that this was a terrifying and horrifying thing. And I was just like, it's just, it's just her grandma. She, yeah. she seems nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she's very nice. One of the things that I, I found sort of reading your book is it, it, it makes you sort of re-examine the sort of minutiae of how we, we deal with death in our own culture. And one of the things that I, I think stuck stuck out for me which seems relevant because in the past year a, a very large number of people have died in this country and of course around the world from covid is this weird yeah. thing where we see death as a sort of failure don't we we say sadly he lost the battle against cancer or whatever or he lost the battle and and i wonder whether mm. it, is that something that in these cultures that have a much more positive attitude to death do, do you see that it, it sort of expressed in different ways 
Yes, it's not the, the the combative language that we use. It's um, it, it's. I mean, it's gross on so many levels. I mean, for one thing, it's sort of it's almost like a. If you do want to see death as a failure and a bad thing, then using combative language, it's almost victim blaming, isn't it? You make it yeah. sound like they lost and they're a loser and they should have just fought harder. Yeah, totally. And it's sort of, they, they weren't strong enough, but this person is strong, and therefore, you know, that person has survived. And you can, and it, it it's this bizarre, yeah, almost like a kind of league table of 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 of, of an individual, which seems very unfair. Absolutely. I mean, and it comes from this idea where, you know, death is the enemy. And, you know, that is a seed that's planted so early. You know, every kid's cartoon or whatever, it's essentially taking death, giving it a scary face, and then the hero tricks it or defeats it in some way. And um, then all of their victims come back to life. Or do you know what I mean? It's like, this this is planted so early. And it's, you know, when the first time you're handed a chocolate egg and someone tells you we're celebrating Jesus rising from the dead, what a winner. You know, and it's why that children between the ages of five and nine tend to view death as something that can be outsmarted, that as long as you're clever enough, you can avoid it. And that, you know, they do learn that it's inevitable, but that never really goes. You know, every baddie is essentially that same thing. I mean, Voldemort, you know, if we're talking about Harry Potter, Voldemort, Voldemort, flee from death. And that is a character who, as I remember, ruins everything trying to gain immortality. And, you know, in that way, he's a baddie. But of course, he also encompasses death for everybody else. And Harry defeats him. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, I think this starts really, really early. And so it's sort of baked right into the culture long before you get to the point where anyone you know is dying of cancer and you start talking about fighting. So I think that is um, the route that that's taken. It's unbelievably deep. And yes, I mean, I don't, you don't hear people talking about it like that. I mean, I can, I mean, I'm only actually fluent in one of the languages that I ended up talking on this trip, which was Spanish. And uh, no, no, it, it isn't spoken about like that. The, 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 the concern in Mexico is more about having a good death. Um, mm. You know, a death, for example, where you get to die at home, surrounded by your family, someone's there to redo your last rites, for example, that becomes desirable, particularly in a country where, you know, I mean, in, I think it was in the decade before I wrote the book, the only country in the world that had had more unnatural death than Mexico was Syria. Um, you know, so it was in death. I did not mention this to my mother while I was living there. Um, but when you live in a country where you're, the likelihood of murder, you know, brutal murder is ever present, then you're, you're less affronted, but just by the fact of a mortal body. And you're more concerned about, you know, having a good death. So the idea of avoiding death itself, it doesn't really come into it. And, you know, and Mexicans, I mean, they, they all told me that we're not afraid of death. And, you know, it's a part of life and all this. And when I first got there, I thought this was absolutely bananas. I'd never heard such a thing. But now I've been hearing it for years and years. It makes sense to me. In terms of the, the context, obviously, as, as I mentioned, you know, we, we in the last year, death has has been a more sort of frequent visitor in the UK and around the world because of coronavirus. Do you think that will have an impact in terms of how people look at death, just being the the, the numbers of of people having died in in, in recent months? Yes. I mean, I think, I hope at least that we're more likely to move towards that idea of wanting a good death because there's a movement called death positive, which is essentially, which gets misunderstood. People think it means like cheering when people flatline. 
what it means is engaging with the fact that you're going to die one day in a way that sort of lessens your anxiety. And I think it's the denial of that that has led to more people dying, ironically, because if you were, if you're a person who wants to, you know, who doesn't want to engage with the fact of mortality, and you're in a pandemic, you then might be the sort of person who refuses to wear a mask, a person who refuses to sort of you know, would rather believe that there's a giant conspiracy rather than just admit the fact that there's something deadly passing between us. So I think coronavirus, if anything, my my hope is that it it moves people towards the idea of, okay, so we're going to die. It is a fact of life. So maybe the, the only control we really have is trying to make sure that that's a good death and not a horribly unfair one, whereby somebody dies because someone else thought it wasn't important to wear a mask. It's not a good thing when we've got loads more people dying, it's it, the only good thing is when you can take what's happening and try to live a better life. That's generally all the whole death positive thing is about, is about sort of improving everybody's life. But in order to do that, you have to engage with the fact that death happens and that in situations like this, we have the power to increase or decrease that number ourselves. I suppose um, one thing I'd be interested in sort of your thoughts of, because you obviously experienced death festivals and in in cultures where people have got a sort of highly developed culture around how they handle death. And by contrast, you know, in Britain, as as we've covered, the death is something we'd rather pretend didn't exist. And if it does happen, then you cover it up. And, and, you know, there are people who we pay to take a dead body and make it go away so that we don't have to look at it. What do you think would be a sort of realistic change in British culture, because we're not going to start a a new death festival in Britain. How do you think our own culture might change in in a sort of realisable way that would that would help people deal with death in a kind of manageable, healthy fashion? I think one of the most realisable ways we can change the culture on this is um, to start teaching about death in schools. There is something really strange about the fact that Even my parents, who are medics, when I told them that Chris had been dead for eight days, my mother said, I can't even imagine what that looks like. And I thought, a medic doesn't know. And I thought, okay, so perhaps that's because at that point, you know, the medic's job is over. But they know other things. They know about the intricacies of of what happens to a zygote, you know, that that they don't necessarily need to be there to witness. And I thought there's something absolutely bizarre that a medic doesn't know what happens to a dead body. And I think my my suggestion that they should teach about that in schools would be met with, oh, but that would be traumatizing for the children. Two things. A, no, it wouldn't. Kids love death. It's their favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone knows that really. If you If you do a thought experiment now, if you imagine a dead body in the woods and a group of people happening upon it, you know that if it's a group of adults, they will be shocked and sort of turn away. And you know if it's a group of kids, they're going to run up to it and they're going to poke it with a stick. Everybody knows that. Um, And it's us that teach children to be afraid of death. My second point is that I had to watch a video of a woman giving birth, and that was horrifying, and I will just not have it. (laughs) Death is any more horrifying than birth. It was a bloodbath. Um, So I, I really think something as simple as teaching about the chemical process of decomposition what would be wrong with teaching that? What would it take away from children? Nothing. And, and actually, there's an organization called The Corpse Project who found that children are very keen to learn about death. Um, so even something as simple as introducing it into our education system, it means that there's knowledge 
where right now there is no knowledge. And it also teaches that it's something that is, is ordinary to talk about. And I think even, even something like that would make it a bit less, it, it would demystify it and there would be less of a culture of silence around it. Because that's the other thing is there's this sense that it's inappropriate. There's this sense that when you mention it, you're being rude, you're rocking the boat, you're somehow detracting from the conversation. And so I think I think that is the thing that, that, you know, needs to be worked on, first of all, that simple, realizable thing of just having it somewhere in the culture, somewhere in our education system. I couldn't agree more. And like lots of parents, I've had that experience where an elderly relative dies. And so you, you tell your child, and that'll be the first mm experience that they've had of some kind of death and then they ask the yeah. fairly um reasonable question it's sort of well does that mean everybody dies and obviously you say yes they say what well, including yeah. you and then there's this awful yeah. moment of realization that you've tried to keep from your child this rather uh, sort of fundamental aspect of human life that you know everyone's going to die at some point and you're bereaved at this time yeah this is a moment when you are, at, like I said, at your highest moment of trauma because you've just lost a parent. And what are you doing in this moment? You're having a really diff- difficult conversation with your child because this is the moment to talk about it. We should probably should have picked it up another moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and there's also, you have this slight sense of guilt that you've kind of sort of misled your child up to this point that, that maybe there, were, there was a plan B with death. And, and, and so, you know, and you Correct, have to yeah. sort of give the game away at, at that final moment. Erica, your book is fascinating, but it's also very important that the listeners understand it's incredibly funny. And I think that's a a sort of final point that I I basically wanted to sort of uh, finish on today, which was the ability to laugh about death without being cruel. And that seems to be something that is is very present in a lot of the cultures that you interacted with and, again, isn't present in our culture. Could could you say a little bit about that? I mean, I think it's (laughs) the first chapter that I I showed to other writers I workshop the chapter where I try to buy a sandwich and fail and you know the agoraphobia and everything and yeah. it's the first piece of writing advice I've ever ignored which was um you need to make this chapter less funny because uh, you're making me want agoraphobia <laughs> and I said that's not gonna happen um because I mean I think it's it's partly it's just how I I deal with things I actually used to do stand-up comedy it's just the way my brain works but death is a little bit funny. One of the reasons it's funny is partly because because we have this culture of silence around it. It means that the minute you bring it up, there's tension in the room. And yeah. a tense room is an easy room. You can get that room to laugh much easier than any other room. But yes, I think it's something that people do when, once you've accepted it's part of life. Then, you know, you can cry about your grief and you can cry about the absence of someone. But you can also, I mean, in, in Madagascar, you know, they play cards and they laugh and they literally try to laugh to get rid of the sadness. And I thought they were saying at the wake or whatever. And they said, no, 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 literally right after the person dies. That's that's what we do. And also part of that is is if you believe that a spirit hangs around, like in, in Nepal, part of the point of um, everybody dancing in the streets to music and everything, part of the point of there being comedy just infused into this whole festival is about uh, supporting the people who are, you know, left behind and bereaved, making them laugh, but also showing the spirit that's hanging around, like, don't worry, I'm okay, you can go. Because the idea is that if you're crying and crying and crying, your mum who's just died might think, well, how can I leave them? I better Mm. stick around and then they're not going to heaven. So, uh, and I love that because it means they're sort of 
constantly showing, I don't know, showing their love and their feeling for the person who's died as well as, as part of their grief. So yeah, I mean, we, we deal with everything with humor here as well, but it's here, it's, uh, it's about not feeling something here. It's about trying to um, you know, avoid the embarrassment of having a human emotion in front of another human. You know? yeah. So, which I love, don't get me wrong. It's actually my favorite thing about Britain is that, um, is everyone's so funny here, but um, I'm not sure we're always laughing for the right reason. I sometimes think we're laughing in order to avoid our emotions rather than engage with them. So, um, I'm, so I'm really glad I've been to all these other places where, where humor is incorporated literally as a way to support each other. Erica's book, This Party's Dead, published by Unbound, is a fantastic read. As I say, it's very funny, but you'll also learn a lot. Thank you so much for joining us in the bunker. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Erica, for joining us, and thank you for listening. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesdays, Thursday, and Friday, with the main panel podcast on Tuesdays. You can get each podcast early and without adverts, plus our stylish Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.